Well, listeners, this is the Dogs Program. It's a very special program because this is May Day and we have a press release, 889, May Day Memories. And we're going to talk about three battles for schools. There's the Burst and Strike School and there is the Battle for Northland Secondary College and there was the Battle for Richmond Secondary College. But the Burst and Strike School occurred earlier in the 20th century in England. And I found out about it from a very special person. And this May Day 2021 DOGS program, I in particular and other DOGS members would like to remember Jack Farrah. Let me tell you about Jack because he was pretty important in 3CR's history as well as May Day history. He was an English migrant and for many years with Frank Little and his wife, He used to organise the May Day marches. It was a special organising committee and he was on it. He was a stalwart of 3CR and he was also a member of HAG, which was the Organisation for Homeless People. The Housing for the Aged Action Group. That's it. He himself was homeless. But he comes from a very respectable real estate family in Bournemouth and they were rather surprised when he married a widow with a son who was an Anglican deaconess and he was a jack of all trades he worked in all sorts of all sorts of jobs no job was too difficult for him so long as it brought in the money which enabled him to help his good wife with her home for the disabled and her son now the son who he read and actually paid to please the wife for I think it was the Melbourne Grammar School fees. The son became a vicar of Christchurch, Brunswick, and he went on for greater things to become the Bishop of Wangaratta. But Jack was a committed socialist and Dogs members found him on the street homeless because his wife had died and her son had gone on a holiday to England and left Jack on the street. Apparently, his socialist ideas were not welcome at the same dinner table as Bishop Hollingsworth's. Well, the dogs took Jack in. He lived with me. He knew that we'd been involved with the battle for Richmond Secondary College and he gave me a book. And this book was about the Burston Rebellion in England. So today on May Day, we remember the Burston Rebellion and the part paid by like-minded people here in Melbourne when Jeff Kennett closed our public schools in the 90s. The Burston Strike School was founded as a consequence of a school strike and it became the centre of the longest running strike in British history. It lasted from 1914 to 1939 in the village of Burston in Norfolk, England. The strike began when teachers at the village Church of England school, Annie Higdon and her husband Tom Higdon, were sacked after a dispute with the area's school management committee. The school children, who were led by Violet Potter, went on strike in their support. Encouraged by the community, the Higdons went on to set up an alternative school, which was initially attended by 66 of their 72 former pupils. Beginning in a marquee on the village green, the school moved to a local carpenter's premises and later to a purpose-built school financed by donations from the labour movement. This strike school carried on teaching local children until shortly after the husband Tom's death in 1939. So what happened? Annie Catherine Scholick, or Kitty, married in 1896 Tom Higdon, who was the son of a farm labourer. And first of all, they lived in London before moving to Wood Dalling in Norfolk, in 1902, and that coincided with the publication of an education bill in Parliament, which offered education to working class children. Now, Kitty was appointed headmistress at the Wood Darling School with Tom as an assistant teacher. They identified themselves with the local farm labourers, and because he was a farm labourer originally, and the Higdons ran up against almost immediate resentment from the school managers who were mostly farmers. They objected to the cold, insanitary conditions of the school and especially protested at the farmers taking children away to work on the land whenever they were needed. And eventually, after a complete breakdown of relationships, the Norfolk Education Committee gave the Higdons a choice, accept dismissal or transfer to another school. So they took up the latter offer and they moved to the Burston School in 1911. Now, the Burston School 
was a bit different, but the conditions weren't any different. They, they were dealing with a newly arrived rector, the Reverend Charles Tucker. Eland, he was appointed chairman of the school managing body. Eland intended to recover the powers of the church that they had lost into the parish councils. And he demanded deference and recognition of his right to lead the community. So you've got a very aggressive Anglican vicar who wants to be top dog. And his situation with an annual salary of £581, which is a great deal in those days, and a large comfortable rectory, you know, rent-free, contrasted starkly with the farm labourers and their families who were living on average wages of £35 a year in squalid cottages. Their employers, themselves mostly tenants of brewery-owned land, naturally allied with the rector. In 1913, after organising among the local agricultural labourers, Tom Higdon successfully stood for election to the parish council, topping the poll, with Eland failing to even be elected. So he was the assistant teacher who was much more popular with all the locals than the rector himself. This led to the rector having control over the teachers and he began to victimise the Higdons. Since their arrival in Burston, the Higdons have complained about conditions in the school, particularly the dampness, the inadequate heating and lighting, lack of ventilation and general unhygienic conditions. There's nothing new, is there, in the way the powerful and the wealthy treat the conditions for the education of working-class children. It was not new then and it's not new now either. So looking for a pretext for action, the managers accused Kitty of lighting a fire without their permission to dry the clothes of children who'd walked three miles to school in the rain. She was also accused of gross discourtesy when reprimanded for this. In addition, Kitty was accused of beating two Bernardo's girls. Despite her pacifist principles, the school managers found there was good ground for the complaints of the Bernardo foster mother and that they then they demanded that the Higdons be transferred. Tom and Kitty demanded an inquiry be undertaken by the local Norfolk Education Authority Committee. Due to illness, Annie was unable to attend and the National Union of Teachers appointed legal representatives the beating accusation was declared to be not proven, but they did accuse her of being discourteous to the managers. Vicar Eland won the case and being discourteous was deemed sufficient to give the Higdons three months notice. These were teachers that didn't tip the fall off to their betters. And given that England was always a very class conscious society, they were really breaking fundamental rules. The Higdons weren't going to lie down. The Higdons' dismissal took effect on the 1st of April 1914. As the authorities were taking over, the sound of children marching and singing could be heard. Of the school's 72 pupils, 66 had gone on strike, marching around the village waving flags. None of them returned to the school, but instead they had lessons on the village green. This is what happened at uh, Richmond Secondary College. They had lessons in the local park opposite the school after Mr Kennett's um, hoons had trashed the school, but you'll hear about that later. This alternative school was well-equipped. It maintained a full timetable and it observed registrations with the full support of parents. The authorities were in no mood to tolerate this defiance and 18 parents were summonsed to court and fined for failing to ensure their children's attendance at school. Collections outside the court paid the fines and since the parents were sending their children to school, the school of their choice, this was the school of their choice, haven't we heard a lot of that about that lately? The authorities were soon forced to back down. I mean, if the upper classes were sending children to the, to the schools of their choice, why shouldn't the working class? Word of the strike quickly spread and it became a central issue for trade unionists and school reformers throughout the country. And this is why, as a good trade unionist, Jack Farrow wanted me to know about it and now I want you to know about it because trade unionists and socialists over the centuries are very important people for education of all children. There were regular visits of supporters and speakers to this school. With the onset of winter, the school moved into empty workshops and the authorities kept up their intimidation with the farmers sacking farm labourers, which also meant eviction from their tied cottages. This could not be maintained because a shortage of labour during the First World War meant that they had to be re-employed. They needed people to bring in the food. 
Striking families who rented land from the rector for growing food were evicted and their crops and property was destroyed by the rector. The village's Methodist preacher, however, who held services on the village green on Sundays for families of the strike school children, was censured by his church. Uh, There's nothing new about that with the Methodists, is there? At the end of the first year of the strike, with the lease on the old workshops due to expire, an appeal was made for funds to build a new school. By 1917, a national appeal had reached £1,250 with donations from miners and railway workers' unions, trades councils, independent Labor Party branches and cooperative societies. The new school was officially declared open on the 13th of May 1917 with the leader of the 1914 demonstration, Violet Potter, declaring, with joy and thankfulness, I declare this school open to be forever a school of freedom. Violet, remember, was the student who'd led the other students out on strike. This was a student strike. The Burston Strike School continued until 1939. Tom Higdon died on the 17th of August, 1939. And by that time, Kitty, then in her 70s, was unable to carry on alone. And the last 11 pupils transferred to the council school. In 1949, though, after the war, Second World War, the National Union of Agricultural Workers, the NUAW, because remember, it was their children, it was the farm labourers' children who were in this school. Their union initiated the establishment of the Burston Strike School as a registered educational charity. Along with Sol Sandy, the surviving trustee of the Strike School and a member of the National Union of Agricultural Workers, three additional trustees were appointed from the union. The self-perpetuating trustees of this Strike School have the legal responsibility to manage the school and try to develop it as a museum, visitor centre, educational archive and a village amenity. In the early 1980s, the National Union of Agricultural Workers merged into the Transport and General Workers Union to form the National Agriculture and Allied Workers Sector. It was at that time that the strike school was turned into a museum and a rally to commemorate the school and the longest strike in United Kingdom history was re-established. So there you have the story of the longest strike in history was started by children who wanted particular teachers who were prepared to fight for their school. It was in pretty bad condition, the school. They wanted a decent education in a decent school. And the children, with the help of the trade union movement, got just that. And uh, I think it's a wonderful story. And this story stands to remind us on May Day of how important education is in the trade union movement and how people, certainly in the last 200 years here in Australia and in Britain, have fought for the uh, children of this country to receive an education. G'day, my name's Simon. I'm a secondary school teacher in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne. I think that there are so many challenges facing education because of underfunding and underappreciation of teachers. I think it's so important, not only for teachers, but for every child in this country and for every parent of a child in this country to be involved with these demands because what we're asking for as teachers and what's going to be good for us as teachers is going to help your kids so much into the future. None of those achievements, none of those demands are going to matter for anything if we do not demand them collectively. That is the role of the union. That has always been the role of the union. And that is why it's so important for us to not just be union members, but to be engaged and active union membership. I've always been told that a union membership is just like a gym membership. You can pay your dues, but if you're not out there, out there actively using it, it's essentially worthless. And we have this problem in education so much where we have a density that so many other industries are super envious of, but because people just take it as given and we're not out there flexing those union muscles, we don't get the wins that we need and that our kids deserve. I think for me as a unionist who saw the bad side of trade unionism in this country a lot when I was in high school. I want to give a particular shout out to RAPWU, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, 
because they're out there in these industries, in, in these supermarkets, in these fast food stores, what are often kids' first jobs and therefore kids' first taste of trade unionism, showing that a union can be strong, can fight for you, can be on your side and not the bosses, like the SDA was for me when I was in high school. And I think it's good to be in a union because that's us working together as a community in our trades, in our neighbourhoods. That's the only way that we're going to beat back the bosses is by doing it together. Happy May Day, comrades. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, wherever you are on International May Day. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. As a teacher working in a residential setting, I feel that the union offers me a great amount of support of my rights and responsibilities. I have been in a union for 30 years now. I've enjoyed working with like-minded people. It is the only way to ensure that you get good working conditions. I joined the union because as a new teacher, I can keep well informed about what the working conditions should be like. I joined the AEU to know what my rights are and the union has been really good at providing advice when I've needed it. I joined the union because I think there's peace of mind in knowing that there's a body out there looking out for our best interests. I joined the union to have a collective voice which is empowering and celebrates diversity. I joined the union because I think it's really important in this current climate to have lots of support and I have great gratitude for the AEU who support all teachers and in particular TAFE teachers. The union's important to me as a casual relief teacher and a mum because I know they're fighting for the best conditions for me. I'm in the union because on the issues of importance, they reflect what I believe. When you're in the union, you're not alone. You're listening to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and this is our special May Day program. And I'd like to talk about what happened at Northland College in 1992. When the Kennett government took over from the um, Kerner government in 1992, when he got into power, there was a problem with the budget. The state bank had been sold and in those days, austerity was the way with the neoliberals. It was a very interesting situation in which he wanted to close 55 public schools in Victoria and he did it. People put up a fight. Large numbers of people, particularly in the country, put up a fight for their schools, but they lost a large number. But there were two schools that became the rallying cry for the trade union movement, for the teachers and others. One of them was the Northland College. It was underfunded. Its buildings were in pretty poor order, but it had over 500 students. And for Kennet, that was not enough students, apparently, for a secondary college. Extraordinary. They also closed the Arden School, which was a wonderful school for homeless children. And they were feeding them and doing wonderful things at Arden. That was the first one to go. But Northland, they put up a fight. And this was a fight for a very special school that was different because large numbers of children in that school were of Aboriginal background. A lot of people were involved in this fight, but there are two names that stand out. One is Gary Foley. He had a a child at this school. He was a parent and he was going to fight, not just for his particular child, but for the whole school and what was going on there. The other person, who stands out in this battle is Rafaela Delati Brown, who was the principal of Northland. Now, the media branded it as a school of outcasts and hard knocks. 
history, but it was a lot more than that because Northlands was very successful with such students and that made it a school so worthy to remain open. It was unusual because the so-called outcasts, particularly the Aboriginal children, were flourishing there because they were doing very special things. There was a retail skills program existing which saw the cohesion of the school with the industrial experience and the TAFE accreditation. There was um, a Department of Civil Aviation, Graphic and Industrial Design, Fashion, Music, Dance, Drama and Horticulture. There was also an Aeronautics Program and the school was building a plane and they were receiving instruction from Leverton Aerospace Technology and the Department of Civil Aviation, Graphic and Industrial Design. This is an extraordinary school. And they took the issue to the Equal Opportunity Board. They said there was racial discrimination against the Aboriginal students. And they were prepared to go as far as the Supreme Court and they kept the school open. And Kenneth was furious. But if you go to our website at www.adogs.info, you can find a lot more about this with our latest press release, 889. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. At Gary Foley's curryweb.org, there's a great article on the Northland School versus Kennex. It's a great moment in Indigenous history website, and it's really worth checking out. In 1993, the newly elected Liberal government arbitrarily decided to close 300 of the state's schools. One of the schools was going to be Northland Secondary College, which had the highest Indigenous student population of any secondary school in Victoria. The students and parents decided to resist with a marathon struggle in the community and the court. They ultimately emerged victorious. The full bench of the Supreme Court ordered the government to reopen Northlands. Of the 300 schools closed by Canada, today only one survived, Northlands Secondary College. It is being remembered and celebrated by a cabaret. And in the age, there was an article about the cabaret. Cabaret tells how loved Melbourne school was saved from Kennet closures. In November 92, bad news reverberated through Northland Secondary College. The state government was on a cost-slashing mission and Northland was among 55 schools hit that were closed. It was a big shock for all of us, remembers Alistair Thorpe, who was then a Year 7 student at the working class school. We were very surprised because the school seemed to be thriving at the time, but the government did not reckon on the spirit of the college's students, teachers and parents. In a campaign lasting over two years, they took their case to the Equal Opportunity Opportunity Board and the Supreme Court alleging discrimination against the school's high proportion of Indigenous kids. They staged a mock attempt to enrol kids at a top private school, Scotch College, which Mr Kennett's sons attended. They marched on Parliament and they won the fight. The school was reopened in March 95. It's a victory that the campaigners, known as the Northlands Collective Mob, think is worth celebrating. So 26 years later, they've created a cabaret about it called A Fight for Survival to run as part of the Yurumboy Festival. The production showing at the meat market in North Melbourne from the 7th of May to the 9th will involve more than 30 people who were part of the campaign to save the school. It will include storytelling, music, dance, comedy and archival footage. Alistair, who will perform in an Indigenous dance group, Koori Youthful Shakespeare's in the cabaret, was among the Northland kids who, in 93 and 94, attended a rebel school. Classes run by volunteer teachers, first at the school, then a vacant church and Northcote football club room. After Northland reopened, Alistair started year 10 there and went on to finish year 12. He has a master's in public health and is currently a PhD candidate in the area of Aboriginal health research ethics. Alistair says he looked back at the campaign with pride, but it was bittersweet because today the school, now called Northland College of Arts and Technology and catering for years 10 to 12 with some tertiary subjects, no longer has Aboriginal input. He hopes this can change. He's sad that his own kids won't have the same opportunity as he had growing up to go to a school that embraced their Aboriginality and respected them for it and allowed them to express. Alistair's uncle, Robbie Thorpe, 
whose kids, Robbie Jr. and Lisa, were Northland students in 92, said it was the only place in Victoria where Aboriginal kids could go and get a little taste of Aboriginal culture. It had an Aboriginal dance group, theatre productions and a music program. Two Aboriginal aides made the kids feel at home. Robbie Thorpe felt that authorities were afraid of Aboriginal people's education and disliked them managing their own education. He felt Northland would protect his children against the racism that he and his mother had experienced at school. Aboriginal kids wanted to learn, but they needed the right environment. Robbie Thorpe said parents and teachers, led by people such as activist Gary Foley, whose son Bruce also went to Northland Secondary College, did a mighty job in persisting in the fight. Asked what he thinks about the cabaret, Robbie said, I think it's fantastic. It's a real story of struggle against the system and elements of racism, institutionalised racism in particular. It's a really great story and it's a victory, one of the rare victories we've had, Robbie said. It shows what you can do when you stand up. That's all people have got to do with this system. All you've got to do is stand up and question it and it'll fall over because its foundations are no good. The Yurumboy Festival from May 6th to the 16th features more than 150 events celebrating First Nations culture. Hi, my name is Ryan. I'm a secondary school teacher. I think it's an important job and I, I think it's important to work in the state sector. And I think a lot of kids who need education and need support don't get it in the private sector and can get it in the mainstream system. And I think we need to organise as teachers because we're under attack by government all the time. They blame teachers for poor outcomes in school, not that system itself, which is at fault massively. And if we don't organise and don't stand united, we'll find ourselves doing more and more admin and less and less teaching. The challenge of teaching is in fact to do more and more admin and you get time to teach, and you need more and more time to attend to issues around welfare, um, and social and emotional uh, concerns, especially post-COVID. So a big solidarity to all the teachers out there, all education workers, uh, particularly teachers aides, who are underpaid and overworked, underappreciated by a lot of teachers and by a lot of management, and they do a fantastic job. So round of applause to teachers aides, who I think really need us, because they, they are, critical to a good teaching. Happy, happy May Day. Listen to 3CR, a great community station. So have a great 2021 May Day. Get out there and show them unions count, because they sure do. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello... You know, all stories might, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of the dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to leave this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view.
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, this is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And this is our special, special May Day celebration because it is a celebration. We've been talking about the Burston school strike. We've been talking about the success of keeping Northland Secondary College open. Now we're going to talk about the Richmond Secondary College battle, which was a very big battle indeed. We're lucky enough to have with us uh, Stephen Jolly. Welcome to the program, Stephen. Hi, good. Great to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Earlier on in the program, we were talking about the attempted closure of the Richmond School by the Kennett government in 1992, and which led on to community action. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that action? Sure. Well, as you say, in late 1992, the Kennett government was elected to power in Victoria, and one of the first acts was to close down, first of all, 55 schools and then eventually 350 schools in Victoria, mainly in working class suburbs. And um, it was probably the biggest disaster for state education in modern history. There was a slashing and burning of schools just at the eve of a big population explosion in Melbourne. And we're still playing catch up to this day. Five of the schools occupied, that is to say that the students, the teachers, the parents and, uh, and, and their supporters physically occupied a school. There was one in Bendigo, Doveton, uh, Fitzroy, and Northland in um, the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And of course, as you said, Richmond Secondary College in, in Richmond in the inner southeast of, of Melbourne. And we, for about a year and a half, we physically occupied the school. We ran a rebel school with unemployed teachers and uh, we kept the school alive and waged an almighty protest that at the end of 1993, roughly a year after the start of the occupation, sort of exploded in, into like an, an attempt, an eviction by the the government, then a picket line, and then a baton charge, and then massive community support, which we've been building up all during the year anyway. And then in the end, a, um, a settlement between the, the occupiers and the state government, where we sort of got an 80% victory, where we saved the school for state education. It became Melbourne Girls College. It still is Melbourne Girls College. And it was only really about two or three years ago that we got uh, co-ed education back with the building of the, of the new co-ed state school in um, Gladell Street in Richmond by the current state government. So it was a big win. And back in those days, they were quite rare. So um, it's, it, it was it was uh, it, it shows that you can stand up to, to bad decisions and bad governments and win if, if a community is united. And what did that community look like? Yeah, there wasn't that many teachers involved. Early okay. on, the occupation was begun by teachers, but the, the state government quite cleverly gave them all jobs elsewhere to try and split them away from the campaign. So the core, the backbone of the campaign where um, the students, the teachers and their supporters um, and supporters of state education in the area and also generally in, in the city. And, and during the summer of 1992, 1993, during the summer school, summer holidays, they kept the occupation off, as did the teachers. But once term began in 1993, the teachers were relocated to other schools that hadn't been closed. They had no choice but to take up those positions. And we then, and, and the, te- the, the students all started, you know, going off to, to, to schools because obviously that our school hadn't been reopened by the Kennett government. So we then made a decision that the only way for this campaign to actually keep going and actually win would be to run an illegal school, a rebel school. So we advertised in the age for any of the thousands and thousands of teachers that have been sacked by the county government that wanted to keep fighting to come and work um, illegally, I suppose, in an illegal rebel school. But we kept the standards really high. And then we raised money to pay them through, you know, literally shaking buckets at rallies, going to political parties and unions and, you know, local organizations for support. And we'd raised thousands of dollars during the course of that year to pay the wages of these teachers. And so during the day, there was actually a school there, albeit not authorized by the, by the um, government. And then at nighttime, um, we opened up the school to the community for like garage sales, for community groups to meet, um, for sport and all the rest of it. And it really became sort of a hive of activity for the Richmond community, but also a hive of anti-Kennet activity, especially as the union started dropping off as you go deeper into 1993. And they failed in their uh, attempts to sort of stop the Kennet juggernaut. So it became sort of the bastion of anti-Kennet resistance in those in those times. It's a great example of uh, collective action. Um, what did the rebel school look like? Where was it? We've been talking about the Burston Strike School in the UK, and you know they started okay. they started in fields and then moved to carpenters' offices. Whereabouts was the school? Yeah, well, we, we, the school um, was based at the school itself. So, okay. from a, from the perspective of a student. You know, they would rock up to school as, at the normal time. They would they would have, an, a, um, you know, a curriculum as per, you know, a 
a normal curriculum at that time. The other schools who hadn't been closed in the area, in an act of solidarity, you know, they, they looked at the program, they looked at the curriculum, they looked at the teachers, and they said, this, this is of at least as good as quality as what was the case when the school was officially opened, uh, you know, a year before. Um, and, and if any student left Richmond Rebel School and went to their school, they'd accept whatever education it had in the Rebel School. So that showed the quality of education that you had. And the type of teachers that would volunteer to work in a Rebel School on low pay, I mean, I think we pay them like 20 bucks a week or something, which was a lot more back then than it is now, but it was just really topping up their dole. But they were very, very committed to state education that the type of people that volunteered were like really good teachers. So, and we organized, we, we still had possession not only of the school, but also of the school camp in um, Inverloch, I think it was, or some, somewhere north of Melbourne, actually. It was, I can't remember off the top of my head. And we, we take the kids on school camp and like the whole thing was, was dead official. And yeah. we had a principal and all the rest of it. So, but at the same time, it was a very, very radical act of political protest because we had taken out of the hands of the state government a piece of land that they wanted to turn into real estate. It was like a Kennedy free zone and um it, it showed people what's possible if if education is is democratized you know where the parents the students as well as the teachers have, have a say over the curriculum where the school is opened up to the community it's not just a dead space when school closes at four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever but it's a sort of a, a community place for the community um and there was always something going on down there and and, and loads and loads of the locals turned up and, and we would go outwards to other people who are fighting back against the school cuts like the other schools that were occupying and, and, and teachers generally but also to other groups of people who are fighting in the against in general against the policies of the Kennedy government so for example during the winter holidays of 1993 we got a bus and we drove in an anti-clockwise direction through the state of victoria and visited all the primary schools in the second wave of closures that were up for closure and showed them told them what we were doing encouraged them to occupy not to give in and every single school that we visited their, their school was taken off the hit list the closure list. We're really proud of that. So, so by the time the end of 1993 came and the kind of government sent the police in to kick us out, we then put on the picket line, as I said before, and we got bashed and all that. We'd already at that stage had loads and loads of community support because we'd reached out and more, not just by way of what we've been doing and people like liking what we were doing, but actually we'd literally reached out and gone and spoken to groups of workers, to Labour Party branches, to um, community groups, and literally gone around the whole of Victoria to primary schools that had been up for closure. So we had built up, actively built up a big wave of support. And such was that support that the Kennedy government was shocked actually. And they had to um, they had to retreat. And, and as I say earlier on, um, that's when we cut the deal with them at the end of 1993. And what did that deal look like? Well, they um, said that they weren't going to flog off the school, that it was going to be um, a state school there, but uh, it would be a girls state school. Uh, it was Melbourne Girls College. And um, such was our win that they pumped millions of dollars into it. I mean, if you go down to that school now, my, my daughter actually ended up going there years later, which was a very nice sort of completion of the circle, if you like. Mm. Um, it, it feels like a, like a private school. There's so much money being pumped in it. It's like a Julia Gillard Centre, and they've got the, the only state school that do rowing, for example. And it's a really, really well-financed and supported government school. And all the people who go there, all the girls who go there, all the teachers who work there, and all the parents over you know, since 1994, since it's been opened, it's thousands, tens of thousands of people have been touched by that school. They have to remember that that school wouldn't be there if it wasn't for us. The original plan was to flog off that school. And you can imagine, like, have you ever been down the boulevard in Richmond on the banks of the Yarra? It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. They wanted to put apartments there, sell the land off, and turn it, put that money into consolidated revenue. And we stopped that. And uh, every single kid that went there, every teacher that's worked there, every parent whose kids have gone there, you know, that that's... They should know if they don't already that that was because of the brave stance of the, of the students of those at the, in that time and their parents and the community. And, um, you know, we literally shed blood, sweat and tears. I mean, when we were back in charge, people ended up really hurt. That's um, something I wanted to ask you about because it is uh, notorious. It's, it's infamous. What happened that day? There was a wide spectrum of uh, people from the community, from all different echelons of the community. What did that look like, and who were the police attacking? Yeah, good question. I mean, when we got kicked out by the um, by, by the police um, in October, uh, sorry, November of of, um, of 1993, they came at like six in the morning and kicked us all out. Like hundreds, of, well, like about 150 odd police. All the media were there. We were tipped off by about it because we had so much support that even in the police, even the police, some of the police supported us and tipped us off because you know they were saying like we joined the police to get rapists and muggers and murders off the streets not to close down 
school that some of us actually went to. So there was a minority of police officers who were on our side and tipped us off. So we were ready for them. They kicked us all out. And they thought that was the end of it. This is the arrogance of the Kenneth government. They thought that was the end of it. We immediately put on a picket line and encouraged Trades Hall to, to endorse it so that after kicking us out, they were then going to do works on that school. And we, we put on a picket line to stop that. So it was days after that that they then decided to come in and smash that picket line so that they could do what they wanted to do at the um, at the site. So on the picket line, there were students, there were parents, there were grandparents, there were community supporters, there were teachers from other schools who had an ideological support for um, state education. And um, we probably would have had a hundred, a couple of hundred people down there at the time. And the police came down there in a, in a very famous sort of move, move, move stance and with, with batons out and they just smashed us up. I mean, I can't really put it any simpler than that. Like we had cracked skulls, we had those blood and bones broken. And, um, but all the media were there, everything from CNN right down to 3CR. Um, not that 3CR is the bottom of the pile, by the way. It's the other way around. <laughs> Um, just for the record. Um, and, it, you know, it literally was on international TV. And um, the next day, people were so disgusted by what they'd seen where, you know, elderly people and young people had been just treated like this for, I mean, we weren't bashing people. We were trying to save a high school. People couldn't believe that we'd been treated like this. So the next morning on the picket line, because we never, we said we weren't giving up, like a thousand people turned up at dawn to the picket line on the second day. And that just kept going on and on. And then the the, the, the teachers, um union called a, a one-day stoppage in support of it. I mean, the unions were stronger and more militant back then, slightly, than they are now. And uh, it was clear that we weren't going to go away. And that's when negotiations opened up between us and the state government. Um, we forced them to the negotiating table. And because there was a limit to how much support we were going to get, and it was coming towards the Christmas break as well, we weren't in a position to step up the campaign because we didn't have similar sort of modes of support um, and organisation in other schools or in the teachers union or any other union or trade hall as a whole. So we had to, um, you know, and it was very, very controversial at the time, but we ended up having to um, cut this deal, um, which, you know, I think now looking back on it from a 2021 perspective, I think it's, it's absolutely amazing that we pulled it off because so many people thought we were just, what are you doing? Why are you occupying a school? It's not the normal thing in Australian politics for people who lose their job for people whose school is closed down or childcare centre to actually physically occupy it and say, we're not going to let this go, this just school or this primary school, whatever it might be, until the government changed their mind. That's a very, very rare thing in Australian politics. It happens a lot, maybe, or happens more often, say, in South America, in parts of Africa, you know, but it's a very high-end uh, form of struggle for, for working-class people. Like, it's the top range. O occupation is probably one down from, literally, from a revolution. Um, so we did it. Gary Foley led a similar fight just up the road at Northland. Um, there was one also at Fitzroy. And it's really interesting that those three schools who fought with that extreme level of organization and occupation, all three schools were saved. You know, ours were saved. The, the other two, won, uh, Northland won via Supreme Court in the end. And Fitzroy was closed, but the, the, the next Labour government, when they got elected, reopened it. And they're all now still going and thriving. So yeah, it's great, you know, um, and hopefully I think the main lesson out of it all, you know, is that don't take it, you know, when the bad guys try to do something, there's no guarantee that if you fight, you're going to win, but there's an absolute guarantee if you don't fight, you're going to get arsed, you know, so yeah, it's probably one of the most um, stressful, enjoyable, amazing <laughs> uh, things that I've ever done in my life, and I'm really, really proud of it, and every time I go down there, I'm sort of torn, half of me thinks of my friends who are bashed and people, you know, really badly on that day but on the other side of it you know I touched that school I, I lived in that school I lived in the principal's office actually because I was a campaign coordinator for a long time at the at the, at the thing you know at the, at the occupation and um, there's so little like those of us who are involved in things like 3CR and, and left-wing politics I'm a socialist city councillor 99% of the time you're fighting for stuff that you don't actually see the result of you're fighting against poverty against you know the way ref refugees are treated you know for more state education or whatever it might be and often we're just like flying the flag and hopefully that somebody down the line in the future gets the fruits of the work that we do. But um, so it's quite rare that, you know, you can be involved in a struggle and then you can, you can actually physically touch what you've done. Um, the fact that that is no, that is not some yuppie apartment block, but it's actually a state school for young women in this city. It's amazing, you know, um, that that came out of a struggle and, and, and without like sucking up to you or, your, or 3CR, the role of 3CR through that thing, was absolutely 
absolutely key because at the sexy times, at the very start and at the very end of the dispute, and when something big would happen, all the media came down there, as I said before, from CNN down. But the, the people who were there every single day, who literally people could go to 3CR on Smith Street and give a donation and 3CR would pass it on, they were there every single week, every single week, without exception, even in the dark days when, when not many people were supporting us, or at least thought we were all a bit mad, what are you doing sort of thing? Because um, people look back in hindsight, but at the time, there were days when it was, you know, you sort of think, are we a bit mad here living in this school and doing what we're doing? Like, are we like crazy? But um, 3CR stuck with us all the way through. And, um, you know, all of those, all of us who were involved in that dispute will never forget the role of 3CR. So that's why I was, I'm really, like, really happy to be doing this show today with you and, and to um, be talking about that stuff because it's a credit to your, to your, to your radio station, okay. what you guys did back then. Well, the level of commitment that was shown by the community itself um, is was not only remarkable, but is testament to how effective um, organising collectively can be. And I'm sure that there's many people who would still uh, congratulate you and all the people who are involved in that action. Do you know if any of the um, police ever got charged <laughs> or were there any repercussions for the um, horrific violence? Yeah, there were. There were. I mean, the, the police, the government had the arrogance that after the baton charge, they actually charged some of the protesters, um, the, Rich, the Richmond Eight, you know. They were all found not guilty, not, not surprisingly. Uh, and then we went on the offensive and we undertook a civil, civil action against the Victorian police for their behaviour on the day of the baton charge on the 13th of December, 1993. And uh, we won and we got a payout. I personally got, I think, $6,000, which back then was a lot of money. And me and my partner and kids, you know, my two little kids who are now, now adults are in the 20s, we all went to Spain to visit my mom. So <laughs> thank you, Victoria <laughs> Police. Um, but uh, so, yeah, no, um, Slater and Gordon did the, did the uh, and Fitzroy Legal Service were absolutely crucial to that win. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we won the, the criminal proceedings against us. I wasn't personally one of Richard Eight, but the other, the other people that were part of it. And then we, we collectively won the civil action. So there were the repercussions. And, and I think also that the, 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 the methods that the Victorian police used to break up picket lines and protests, at least for a few years after that, they had to pull their head in because um, of the reaction to... Uh, you know, like I'm a construction worker, I'm a member of the CFMU. So if they cops come in and do that to us, people go, Oh yeah, well, they probably deserved it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like overpaid, bloody, you know, um uh, <laughs> construction workers banging on militant, blah, 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 blah. But people don't, you know, and that's not correct, by the way, but I'm just no. making the point. That's what people would think, you know. But um, you know, um, when they do it to, you know, anyone who looks back at the photographs, like just older people, mm. you know, I mean, it's it's a pretty benign thing. It's like calling for world peace, you know, trying to stop. A, a state school being closed down in a working class area that had been, by the way, built because of a struggle of the local community in the late 60s at a time when the population was just about to kick on to a degree not seen in the city since the uh, gold rush. Mm. I mean, the population has pretty much doubled in Melbourne since then. So it was the greatest uh, policy disaster by any government. I mean, to close all your schools just when the population is about to double. I mean, people bang on about, oh, Kennedy, you know, maybe he should read. Re really the Liberal Party, you know, he's really smart. He's got a column in the Herald Sun, he boss of Hawthorne. The guy's a freaking idiot, mm. you know. Um, not no one, no one um, I mean, even he must admit that he really messed up, even from his perspective, they really messed up by making uh, by closing 350 schools back mm. then. Um, and uh, and anyway, we 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 fought and we won and so sucked up, sucked sucked into him, you know. Yeah. Well, look, thanks for going over it uh, again with us. In case the listeners would like to find out more, you've written a book. Tell us a little about the book and maybe let listeners know where they can find it. Well, well, the book uh, only happened because Defensive Government Schools um, financed the book and uh, I'd like to thank them. Some of those people have passed on, but they were fantastic advocates and supporters, not just ideologically, but practically on it, you know, like by being involved in the occupation for state education, they have done for many, many years. So yeah, you know, so it's a, it's a book, it's the whole history of the campaign. So it's sort of a, it's a history of, of the struggle, but also it's a little bit of a how-to, how to organise that sort of thing, because it is quite rare in Australia mm. um, to do that sort of stuff. If anybody wants to get a copy, they can just email, email me directly, like probably the easiest thing, stephenjolly99 at hotmail.com, uh, stephenjolly99 at hotmail.com, and I'll just... Um, um, it's 20, I think it's $20 and I can just, uh, they just email me their, their address and all that. I'll, um, 
I'll, I'll, we'll get them uh, a copy sent to them. I think it's also available at 3CR as well. So uh, Excellent. Perhaps give them a call first. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for being part of that action and being part of the DOGS Solidarity broadcast this afternoon. It means a lot. Thanks for your time. No, th thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. It's brought back a lot of um, powerful memories and um, I hope your listeners enjoy the show. It was a powerful action and, as you say, one of the rare actions that actually created some affected positive change and it shows what a community organised can do, which on today, May Day, is exactly what we want to hear about. Thanks again for your time, Stephen Jolly. And the book is called Behind the Line. Councils around the country will put on disability day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool mm -hmm. that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think you know, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, our time has run out. We could have spent so much more time telling you how important it is that uh, you, if you are a teacher, you join a union and how important the unions have been over the centuries, the last two centuries, for the building up of public education and the fighting for our schools when those in power thought that they could deprive our children of the education they should receive. If you go to our website at www.adogs.info, you will find our press release 889, which has got all of these May Day memories. But it's bye for now from Dale and myself.
says Joe, I didn't And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.